continuing in our sermon series in the book of Revelation, All Things New, Hope at the Revelation of King Jesus. Well, uh, growing up, my family and I drove to uh, Florida quite a bit, and uh, we've taken our kids several times driving to Florida. And if you've ever driven from Indiana, or I grew up in Pennsylvania, but both places apply, driving down to Florida, you'll see quite a bit of large billboards on the way down, right? And they're kind of a standard set of billboards, right? There's just like three or four. And one of them is always some sort of large indication that you need to repent because judgment is coming, right? There's something about hell or something about the return of Jesus, but it's always in this very like graphic, judgmental way, right? Like judgment is coming, repent. Now I'm not sure, maybe God has used these in someone's life before, maybe. Uh, I don't think it's a great strategy for believers, Uh, I think what it mostly does is confirm for those who don't follow Jesus that Christians are a little bit crazy and like to talk about judgment. <laughs> uh, they like the idea of coming judgment. And, and just the idea of coming judgment in general is crazy. Like that's just a crazy thing that we can just ignore. I think there's actually far better strategies for building relationships with people and talking about the good news of Jesus, which certainly includes talking about coming judgment, as we're going to see today, coming judgment and salvation. Uh, But the coming near to people and caring about them and talking with them uh, helps us actually uh, ask the questions uh, necessary to expose things and and, uh, ask questions to get to know them uh, and not just confirm to them that we're crazy people. Now, do we actually believe in coming judgment, though? And... Are we crazy for believing that? Well, this morning, I I want us to look at a a chunk of the book of Revelation. And remember, as we talked about last week, we are entering into, we've been through uh, a big portion of the book already. Uh, If you remember, if you were here for our introduction to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation is broken down into seven major parts. Uh, If you ever hear someone preach on the book of Revelation, they mainly preach on part one. Because it's these letters, <laughs> and they're easy to preach, and, and they make sense. And then you move into all sorts of craziness. And so uh, we're in part two right now. We're actually going to finish up part two this morning, uh, part two of seven, and walk through some of these pieces. But remember, part of the goal of this is to understand what apocalyptic literature is doing and sort of demystify some of these things and help us to understand what's the point that John has for us so that we don't have to be terrified to read the book of Revelation. So, rem- remember, one of the most important pieces of this book is understanding the time frame of the book of Revelation. We've seen this chart a couple of times. Uh, the first coming of Jesus, uh, his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, right, that happened in the past. And the second coming of Jesus, the final judgment and salvation, what's coming in the future. And we have argued, and I've shown a couple of times, and we're going to show again today why this is the case, but that the book of Revelation is not covering just this tiny little sliver here at the end, but really this whole section. Meaning the book of Revelation applies to the first century church, and it applies to us now, and it's covering this entire section of time. So we're going to be looking at that today in a couple of different ways. Now, But remember, it feels not like this. The book of Revelation doesn't feel like this, right? It's not laid out chronologically. What it feels like is a little bit more like this. (laughs) This spiral of intensity that the events get more and more intense as you walk through the book. It's covering the same time frame in these different parts, but it's ratcheting up the intensity throughout the book. Now, uh, before we get into uh, this part here at, at 6.1, I want to break down a little bit of where we're at in the book. And if you do have uh, your Bible on your phone or a Bible in front of you, uh, and it might be helpful. I know that we always keep the scriptures on the screen in front of us, but it might be helpful throughout this Revelation series to bring a physical Bible or to have it on your phone. Because we're going to be jumping around in different spots through this uh, section. And I want you to see the text. Uh, Not just hear me, but see the text. So part two of the book spans from chapter four to uh, chapter eight, verse five. 
And remember in 4, we saw a vision of the throne room of God, seeing into the temple to see the throne room of God. Part 5 talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, right? He is the Lamb that is worthy of all worship because He was slain and has purchased people for God from every tribe, from every people, from every nation, and from every language. 6 is going to talk about, remember there was this scroll that John saw, and no one was worthy to break the seals on the scroll except for Jesus. And Jesus is going to break Six of the seven seals in chapter six. Then seven kind of gives us, chapter seven gives us this little interlude, a little break that showcases the church in the midst of God's judgment upon the world. And then eight, one through five, is going to break the seventh seal, uh, bringing uh, the end, right? The seventh seal. Remember, this scroll is a scroll. Uh, looking at the judgment and salvation of God, the plan for judgment and salvation. And so the breaking of the seventh seal would be the end of that, right? And so I'm going to show you here in a second, there's some time markers uh, that we can see in the book that we're going to see consistently throughout, right? At the end of chapter 7 is one of these time markers where it talks about God wiping every tear from the eyes of, of the church, Now, if you have read the book of Revelation, you know at the end of Revelation in chapter 20, that, or sorry, in 21, that shows up again. And maybe if you think about this idea of God wiping away every tear from our eyes, you think immediately end of Revelation, end of 21. But it shows up here in 7 as well. That's one indication we have that they're talking about the same time frame in different chunks, right? Remember the original analogy I used was that of a football play. And a football play ends and then you watch it from all the different angles, right? You watch the replay from this angle and from this angle and from this angle. Each of these parts is like a replay of the same story. And so we see here at the end of seven, the end of all things and the wiping of every tear. We also see it in uh, the end of chapter 8. We're going to see this great earthquake that shows up. Well, this great earthquake shows up in 8. And then again in 11 it shows up. And it says it's the worst earthquake that the world has ever seen. And then in 16 there's another earthquake. And all three of these are like end of the world earthquakes. And so your option is, if you're reading Revelation chronologically, that the world ends multiple times. Like it's going to split open and be destroyed, and then all of a sudden it's still there. And then split open and be destroyed again. Or, each of these parts is looking at the fullness of this period of time. That's the point that we're trying to make. Now, again, the point of this is to say we can't read this book chronologically. As in one thing happens, and then the next thing happens, and then the next thing happens. And we'll see in this text why that's important. So, This time frame piece is really important to understand the main point of this text, which is, as the Lamb of God, Jesus, breaks the seals of God's judgment, only those who are given the seal of God's salvation will persevere to glory. Let me say that again. As the Lamb of God breaks the seals of God's judgment, only those who are given the seal of God's salvation will persevere to glory. So first we're going to look at the, land, uh, the seals of judgment being broken. All right. As I watched, the Lamb bro- broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. And remember, this is John seeing in a vision, right? And it's apocalyptic. And so these things have uh, meaning and uh, uh, they're connected uh, with not, not a literal thing, but figuratively displaying something else. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Come. I looked up and I saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and wine. 
When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. All right. This is the point in the sermon where you guys are like, man, I'm really thankful you're up there and I don't have to talk about that because what is going on? Right? It it feels a little confusing. But we're going to break it down and demystify some of these things. Well, these first four seals that are broken... uh, actually trigger what is commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, right? And this is where you're like, things are getting weird. Pretty sure he's going to make a billboard to say something about judgment, right? But again, these are vividly stated to figuratively showcase something about what's going on in the world. The overall point of this, these first four seals is that the four living beings who stand before the throne... Send out the four horsemen to bring about the four judgments upon the world of war, famine, conquest, and death. Right? This fourfold curse is kind of present throughout the Old Testament. Remember, John is thinking, and when John sees this vision, he is so steeped in his Bible that what he writes is so, uh, has so many allusions to the Old Testament and draws from these places throughout the Old Testament. And remember that the number four is very significant. It means comprehensive. Just as we have every tribe, language, people, and nation, meaning comprehensively all kinds of people everywhere, four horsemen of judgment, four curses, four living beings. This is comprehensive, worldwide judgment. These four horsemen are unleashing four punishments on the globe comprehensively. Now, these four horsemen are not agents of good, but rather agents of evil used by God to bring about good. And they are representative of the things that they are bringing forth, right? Not that there are literally four living beings sending out four horsemen that are going to fly through the air and that you're going to see. No, that these things are actually actively present now. And they are bringing out the things that they represent. Famine, war, conquest, and death. Uh, As uh, G.K. Beale says in his commentary on Revelation, therefore the horses in Revelation 6, 1 through 8, signify that natural and political disasters throughout the world are caused by Christ in order to judge unbelievers who persecute Christians and in order to vindicate His people. Such vindication demonstrates His love for them and His justice. Now that feels troubling. It feels troubling to think that God uses the evil of this world to accomplish His good purposes. Well, this is troubling and mysterious, and yet it's also the testimony of the Scriptures. That God is not the author of evil. He does not condone the evil. And in fact, we're going to see He's going to judge these very things. Throw them into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. He is going to judge these very things, but first he's going to use them to execute his judgment upon the world and to vindicate his people. He uses these evil forces in the end. Uh, the, The book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament is a great example of this. The prophet Habakkuk says to the Lord, God, our, our people are evil. Our leaders are evil. What are you going to do about it? He says, don't worry, I'm bringing in Babylon. And Habakkuk's like, wait, whoa, <laughs> wait a second, Lord, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I don't think that you should use an evil nation to judge these people. How can you do that? And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of Babylon. But first, I'm going to use them to take care of you. Because my ways are higher than your ways. Because I know more than you. It's really important that I, we remember that this is not the Lord causing evil, rather allowing evil, which is inherently self-destructive, to both judge the wicked and to purify the righteous. And here's the most vivid example that we have of it. In Acts chapter 4, Peter says this, In fact, this has happened here in this very city, for Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. 
but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. What Peter is saying here is that the very cross of Jesus Christ, the place in which Jesus died, was a combination of everyone being united against Jesus in evil action. This is not something that is a good thing. And yet, it's the very thing that we just saw in chapter 5 that the whole of the cosmos is going to worship Jesus because He died on this cross. The greatest evil committed would be the crucifying of the Son of God. And yet the Lord says, this is the very thing that I will transform into the greatest good for the globe. The Lord is mysterious in the way in which He works. Now, there is, this is mystery. This is not something that I'm saying, hey, I've got it figured out. This is how the Lord can do these things. No, I'm just telling you, this is what the text says. And we have to rest in the fact that the Lord in His sovereign mercy, we may not choose to run the globe as He does, but we also wouldn't choose to send our very own Son or willingly as the Son go to the cross for wicked people like us. So we've got to rest in His sovereign care. And we're going to see that as we move through this. Okay, so I want to give you just a, a quick understanding of what these four horsemen are so that you're not terrified of them. Because there's no reason that we should uh, be confused as to what they are talking about. The first horseman here is on a white horse. Is this Jesus? Right? Because later Jesus shows up in 19 on a white horse. So is this Jesus? Well, I don't think it is, given the way in which this is sent out by the four living beings, just like the other ones are. And Jesus is standing in the midst of of the throne and even speaks... Uh, with the, the, the third horseman that goes out, the one on a black horse, uh, it says they heard a voice from among the four living beings, which is exactly where Jesus was, among the four living beings. So Jesus is speaking there. So we don't think that this white horse is Jesus. More likely, as we're going to see later, false prophets come and try to look exactly like Jesus. We're going to see these uh, characters show up in the book of Revelation that are going to act like Jesus. One who acts like he has this mortal wound, looks like Jesus, looks, tries to uh, deceive the church into following them. So f- far more likely it's some sort of false prophet or satanic force that appears in forms like Jesus to deceive. And he comes and brings conquest on the world. The second horseman rides a red horse. He brings war and slaughter. Again, this is not condoning or justifying war or violence. This is simply something that is happening. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God is like, boom, stamp of approval, right? Like that's not, sometimes I think we read our Bible that way and we're like, oh my goodness, why would God be okay with this? Well, he's not. Just because it's there doesn't mean that he's condoning it. It means that it's present. God's not saying, yay, this is good. Just because he uses it to accomplish his mysterious purposes in the world doesn't mean that God says, hey, you can do this too. Uh, In his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Michael Gorman says this, Thus war and its aftermath as divine judgment do not justify humans, especially not Christians, taking up arms. Commenting on the second horse, the red horse, uh, Eugene Peterson therefore writes, For a time, in the headlines, war is perceived as an evil. There are prayers for peace. But not for long, for it is quickly glamorized as patriotic or rationalized as just. But war is a red horse, bloody and cruel, making life miserable and horrid. The perennial ruse is to glorify war so that we will accept it as a proper means of achieving goals. But it is evil. It is opposed by Christ. Christ does not sit on the red horse ever. I think he's right. I think he's right in this. That this idea that there are wars that exist sometimes makes us as Christians say, well, this just is the way it is. But we follow the way of the Lamb, not the way of the red horse. The third seal is broken and it brings this black horse. 
who's holding scales. Now, the holding of scales represents this idea of uh, trade and uh, lack, meaning that there is famine coming. This is just a, a, a picture of famine coming upon the earth, representing famine. Uh, the fourth seal then comes, and death comes forth. And at the end of that, it comes with a summary of these four curses. They were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. Now again, they're given authority over one-fourth of the earth. Again, this is not like a literal, like, hey, we're just, like, at this point, only a fourth of the earth is going to die through this thing. Like, that's not what's happening here. What John is doing is he's going to ratchet it up. By the time we get to Revelation 19, we're talking about total destruction and judgment, right? Here, we're just slowly increasing it. These visions increase in these ways. And so that's why there's this fourth. But they come to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. Now remember, if this is the time frame of the book of Revelation is the fullness of church history, the fullness of the church age, our time, then we should expect that the sword, famine, disease, wild animals, death, judgment is coming and is here. And we look around and that's exactly what we see. Those things are present now. They were present in John's day as he's writing this, as he's urging the church. Remember those letters that we read at the beginning of Revelation? He's saying, do not, do not side with the empire to avoid suffering. Endure, because it's very much here, which is exactly what this is declaring in the same way. And what we now endure as well. Alright, now, we could go into a ton of detail on these things, but we cannot, because we're doing like a broad survey of Revelation. So if you want to get into more detail on all of these pieces, I have lots of resources for you. If you really want to get into this stuff, we can talk about it. Alright, so we've got to keep going. Revelation 6, 9-11. through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. Now we see this. The saints who had been killed are before the throne, asking for the Lord to show up. Now this is not a cry for raw vengeance to be given by us, but a cry for divine justice in the face of evil. I think sometimes we read passages like this and we're a little bothered by them, mainly because we do not have an adequate reckoning with the evil in the world. When we're bothered by things like this, we're not reckoning with the fact that there is real evil in the world. It's really destroying things. How long, O oh Lord? This is a cry present throughout the Psalms and present here from the saints. How long, O oh Lord? And this is something that we can echo here today. How long, O oh Lord, will you allow for violence to be perpetrated against your people? In November, we spent time praying for the persecuted church. You can see on that map there. There are people around the world who claim the name of Christ who are killed for simply claiming the name of Christ. Who are marginalized. Who are put to death and put to jail. Whose possessions are stolen because of their allegiance to King Jesus. This is not just something that has happened throughout history. It's happening today. How long... O oh Lord, will you allow for violence to be perpetrated against the innocent, against children? How long will you allow the, right, the wicked to rule over the righteous? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow for the poor to be taken advantage of? How long will you allow people made in the image of God to be treated wrongly and marginalized for their race, their gender, their ethnicity? Crying out, 
as we did in prayer for the Asian American community in California, in Bloomington, here in Muncie, for the things that they have faced, especially recently? How long will you allow police brutality to destroy lives and communities? Crying out with the black community in Memphis, not just in Memphis, but around this country and around the globe. How long will you allow greed to eat and destroy lives, forcing labor, poor working conditions, exploitation? Lord, how long will you allow abuse to go unchecked in our world? How long will you allow depression, anxiety, and thoughts of suicide to dominate the lives of people? How long will you allow gun violence to be acted out against people because of race, gender, sexuality, or for any reason? How long will you allow war to dominate our globe and the evil of empire building? How long will we seek to kill and destroy one another? The how long, O Lord, is a cry of a lament from a place of pain for the God of justice to come and right all wrongs. If we care about justice, if we care about God righting all wrongs, then we must acknowledge both the evil that is very real in this world and the coming judgment of God upon that evil. It is interesting that most cultures who tend to avoid the idea of judgment or are opposed to the idea of coming judgment have faced often the least amount of suffering of the evil of the world. It's easy to say that there is no such thing as coming judgment from a place of ease and comfort. It is not easy to say that in a place of severe suffering and pain. The world is not a neutral place. There is real evil and God will not tolerate it forever. This is really important because the book of Revelation, remember the book of Revelation, a big part of it is to wake us up, to help us to see and wake up. And it is written to the church, right? John is not writing this to the world. John is not. Very often you see in the Old Testament, there are very few prophets of God who go to the world and announce coming judgment. Jonah does so, but there's very few. Primarily, they come to the church, to the people of God, and announce coming judgment. Because the point is, the point of the whole book of Revelation is to say, guys, Babylon is already ruined. It's already going to sink. Do not unite with Babylon. Do not side with the empire. It is sinking. It is gone. You need to persevere. Judgment is very real and is very much coming. Babylon is falling. Remain faithful to King Jesus. We have become so far removed from any talk of judgment that I fear we are not adequately reckoning with the justice of God. Now, let me make this abundantly clear. You see here, the church is never called to execute judgment. Never. What are the saints doing here? They're praying, God, when will you come? They are never called to take matters into their own hands to execute justice. Again, to quote Michael Gorman, he says, According to Revelation and the biblical witness generally, the judgment of the world, like salvation, is the responsibility and privilege of God and the Lamb alone. It is one of their reserved powers, so to speak. During this life, it is not the mission of humans, whether inside or outside the church, the role of human beings in history, at least those who are part of the people of God, is to announce this judgment prophetically, but not in any sense to execute it. We are called to be the people of the Lamb who was slain, not the people of the red horse that bring judgment. So incredibly important. The saints are crying out to God not to make them instruments of executing justice, but simply for Him to come and to do it. We are to follow the way of the cross. All right, moving into the sixth seal. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. 
The sun became as dark as a black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. Okay, anytime you read in the scriptures, and Jesus uses this language in, uh, in the, what's commonly called the Olivet Discourse when he's speaking his, to his disciples, the moon turning blood red, the sun being covered up, the dark cloud, right? And the stars falling from the sky. This is end of world language, okay? So it's not like, hey guys, we have this, uh, uh, this eclipse that's coming and the moon's going to turn red. Jesus is coming. No, that's not what's happening. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about physical signs that you can look at and see like, oh no, a star fell. We're in trouble. No, no, no. This is apocalyptic language for saying we're ratcheting up the intensity, right? We've gotten to the sixth seal out of seven. So this part of this section is moving to the tail end of that chart closer to Jesus' return, right? He's saying the end is coming now. Okay, so it's not like a end is coming now. We saw a blood moon in the sky, so everybody, like, watch out. No, no, no. Jesus is very clear. No one knows when he's returning except for him and the Father. No one knows, right? So, like, let's not try and predict it based upon increasing violence, war, whatever. Every church age you can look at, someone has said, oh no, it's really coming now. And then it doesn't. And then it gets worse again, right? Like, there's not a time in history in which you're like, oh, it's really, really bad now and it's never been like this before. No, it's just kind of always like this. Okay? So, the sky was rolled up like a scroll and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? If we are not ignoring God's judgment and justice, and we're saying, how long, O Lord, do we really reckon with God's judgment? Are we really reckoning with God's judgment and with God's justice towards even us? You see, often we cry out for justice. We want a God of justice until that gaze is turned upon us. And then we don't want a God of justice. If we are This text finishes here with this appropriate question. The great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to survive it? This is a question we need to wrestle with. Because this is written to the church. Who is able to stand before the Lamb? Who is worthy to stand before Him? No one was worthy to open the seals. Who is worthy to stand before Him in the day of His great judgment? Do you recognize that real judgment is coming against the sin of the world? We can see the suffering and judgment already present in the world and the calamity and the suffering that we face. Right? Not saying that every piece of suffering that we endure or that people endure is a one-to-one judgment of God for their sin. Certainly not. Right? But it's more general. Just like these four horsemen are bringing judgment upon the globe comprehensively, so we are enduring that as it comes now. God's judgment is already actively present in the world against sin, but one day it will come with more fullness. Who will be able to stand before Him? Who is righteous? If God were to weigh not just your actions, but your thoughts and your intentions and your inactions, would you be able to stand before the wrath of a holy God? Would you be able to stand with the things that you have done in thought, word, and deed against what He tells you to do? And the things that you have not done that He's told you to do in thought, word, and deed? Who can stand? Well, thank God someone has stood in our place. And that's the direction we turn. Turning... In chapter 7, it reveals for us that we can turn to the seals of salvation given. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds 
So they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea, Wait! Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of His servants. All right, now this appears to be like a little bit of an interlude, a little bit of a pause, because these four angels likely correspond with the four living beings, right? The number four, again. And we think that that's the case because in the book of Zechariah, which talks about these horsemen that are coming, that, that these four horsemen are likely based on, they are identified as winds, right? So all of these connections make sense, right? So these four winds that are being held back are these four horsemen, right? So the judgment is being held back for a moment. What for? To place a seal upon the servants of God. A seal on the forehead. Now, we're going to go on to see at some point One of the standard pieces of the book of Revelation that everyone wants to figure out is like, what's this mark of the beast? What's this thing? Have you guys heard of this, right? Some people talk about it, right? For sure, right? Well, if we're, uh, I'm going to give you a a foretaste of when we get there. It's going to be a while before we get there. But the mark of the beast is not a microchip that's inserted into you. Certainly not a vaccine or a barcode, or some AI facial recognition software, or a universal ID, or a tattoo, or anything like that, unless we want to say that the seal of God is also those very things. Because the mark of the beast is put on their forehead. But what happens to the church? There's a seal on their forehead, right? Oh, 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 they're related. Oh, so when we leave today, stand in line, and I'll put a seal right on your forehead, right? Like, No, that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about identification. It's talking about being identified as the people of God. This is figurative language for saying, you belong to God. God is marking you as His own. He is sealing you as His very own. Now the irony of this passage, right? The relationship here is, Jesus is breaking seals that no one else could break. He's also giving seals that no one else can break. A seal of salvation. A seal of salvation. Now, who is sealed? All right. We're getting into some more figurative language here, okay? Prepare yourselves. Who is sealed? And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. Uh Uh-oh. There's probably been more than 144,000 followers of Jesus, so we might be in trouble, guys. We're too late in the game. Not what it means, all right? 144,000, remember, numbers are really important in Revelation. 12 is a number of fullness, right? Remember, we had 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, right? The Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, okay? So if you take 12 times 12, that's 144. The number 1,000 in the book of Revelation means big, just big. So you take 12 times 12 times 1,000, A very big, full number. That's what he's saying. That's all it is, right? Look how easy this is, guys. We just break it down, right? 144,000 means very big, full number of the people of God. All of the saints. So he's going to mark them out from all the tribes of Israel. From Judah, 12,000. Reuben, 12,000. All the way down, right? And he marks them out in this way, which looks like the same way in which there are census, there's a census in the Old Testament that is a military census. This feels very similar in the same way that they are marking the sealed out like an army. Like an army that acts like their leader, the Lamb. Again, the irony is, in the midst of war and destruction, we are marking out the seal of God not to go and bear arms, but to go and suffer like the Lamb. Same as... And, and, and we're going to see exactly here, exactly what happened last week with John hearing about something and then seeing something. Right? Remember last week it was, here comes the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sees a Lamb. Here... This is the amount sealed, 144,000. But what does he see? 
After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen, blessing and, awe, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Who are the sealed? Who are these that are sealed? The 144,000, the fullness of God's people. Those who we saw in chapter 5 were purchased by Jesus from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, and from every language. Just as everyone on earth in the end of chapter 6 is saying, mountains fall on us, who can stand before the Lamb? Now everyone, the redeemed of God, are shouting, goodness, here comes the salvation of the Lamb. Here comes the salvation of the Lamb. All of them are wearing white robes signifying purity from sin. How did they get those robes purified? By dipping them in the blood of the Lamb. There are three really important things about, in this text about the seals of salvation. The first is every nation, tribe, people, and language. Just as there is universality in judgment, there is universality in salvation. This is the heartbeat of the church, friends. The heartbeat of missions, of multi-ethnic church planting ministry, and the very heartbeat of Jesus. Every person, without exception, has opportunity to come to King Jesus. To repent of their sins and to come and wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus has purchased a person, people, from every kind of people on the globe. From every possible distinction that we make in people. From every possible distinction we have from one another. Jesus has purchased them from every group without distinction. And he has purchased a definite number of them. 144,000. It's not a random number, right? John looks and says, it's a number too big to count. We can't see it. I cannot possibly count, right? Just as was promised to Abraham, your children are going to be like the sand on the shore. You can't count that. It's a number far too big to count. So why doesn't John just say it's a really big group? Why does he say 144,000? Because it's a definite number. You, if you trusting in King Jesus, are definitely known by God. You are definitely loved by Him. He has called you individually to Himself and has sealed you with the seal of salvation. Before the foundation of the earth, He looked and saw you and said, I will die so that you can have life. It's a definite number. He definitely knew you and planned to ransom you from Satan, death, and your own sin to be His own. The second thing we can know from this text that's really important is how do you know if you're a part of this group? Seems pretty important, right? If everyone's like, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Oh, well, only those who are sealed? Well, how do I know if I'm sealed? How do I know if I'm sealed? What does it mean to be sealed with the salvation of God? Friends, he's going to say it in a couple of ways. Wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. Trust in King Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe the Gospel. Worship King Jesus. This is what it means to be sealed with the salvation of God. Come to Jesus. Enduring to the end. Right? It says it was those who died in the great tribulation, right? This is why this, this idea, this is why I keep every Sunday hitting on this time frame piece. 
When does the book of Revelation apply? Right now. Why is that really important? Because you are those who are living in the time of this great tribulation. It's not this future thing that's coming so you don't have to worry about it. It's not this thing that the church is going to be raptured out of and not have to endure in. No, it's the thing that we're doing right now. Endure. Cling to the Lord Jesus. Now remember, the judgments were held back. Not held back so that the church would not endure them. Held back so that they could be sealed. The implication is then that they are released. And being sealed by God doesn't mean that you're never going to experience those things. It means that your salvation will not be affected by those things. Just as Paul says in Romans 8, who, uh, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Can death, can sword, can famine, can nakedness, can anything? No. What Paul does not mean by that is because those things won't touch you. What he means by that is because the Lord will protect you in them. This book is meant to prepare us for the suffering of the world, not escaping it. How do we endure then? If we are to trust in Jesus, if we are to repent of our sin and cling to the Lord Jesus, that's how we get sealed. How then do we endure to the end? Well, that brings us to this final piece. The sealed of God persevere to the end by being shepherded by the Lamb. John continues, That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve Him day and night in His temple. This idea of standing is really important, right? Jesus, the Lamb, stands in the midst of the four living beings. But He is as though He's been slain. He was slain. He is resurrected. He's resurrected. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Well, what are they doing? They're standing. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is their resurrection. Just as Jesus stands, we too will stand before God. They stand and they serve Him day and night. And He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The Lamb of God will be the shepherd. The way we endure, friends, is not through our hard work. It's not through our holiness and our godliness. It's not through our uh, clinging in strength. It's our admitting our weakness and being shepherded by the Lamb. beauty of this right this sounds like psalm 23 right being led to springs of living water wiping every tear from our eyes jesus answering every how long prayer that we just said earlier that's what this is him answering every one of those wiping every tear from your eye bringing you into glory shepherding you as the lamb who was slain. Never suffering again when Jesus returns. This is the very end of all things. This right here is a picture that we're going to see even in more fullness at the end of the book of Revelation in the, in the new heavens and new earth. And we get a foretaste of this now. The way you endure to the end now is allowing Jesus to shepherd you right now. Allowing Jesus to shepherd you Our endurance isn't based on us having the strength. It's based on Jesus having the strength and us relying on Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. Right? It's the same language. When you believe the gospel, you are sealed with the salvation of God. And what is that seal? with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You want to know if you're sealed? You have the Holy Spirit. That's how you know. Wait, wait, wait. Well, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Do I have to speak in tongues? Do I have to do this other thing? Do I have to do... No, no, no. 
Romans makes it very clear. If you have Christ, you have His Spirit. If you have His Spirit, you have Christ. If you repent of your sins and believe in the Gospel, trust in Jesus for salvation, you have been sealed by God. A seal that no one can break. Jesus Himself has sealed you with His Holy Spirit. You will endure to the end. Cling now to that Jesus. Because the end comes. Right? Revelation 8, 1-5. through When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering to the gold on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth, and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. That language right there is the end of the world. That's, that's what that marker is. We're going to see it throughout. So the question is, are you sealed by the Lamb? The question of this text is, who can stand before the Lamb? Because judgment will come. Jesus is real. He's really coming back. Judgment will really come. Have you been sealed by Jesus for salvation? You repented of your sins, turned away from them and said, Lord, forgive me. Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb who freely offers it to you? Will you come and be shepherded by this Lamb who loves you and wants you? Definitely you. To come and be before Him. Will you come and be led by Him into the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more suffering And every tear will be wiped from your eye. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you now knowing that we cannot endure the wrath of the Lamb. And so we thank you that we are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus, would you awaken in us what you need to awaken? Would you help us to see with your eyes what you have for us in this world? And Jesus, would we come and be like you in this world, offering our very lives to declare to other people that there is hope and salvation and his name is King Jesus. And he came to offer peace and forgiveness and life to its fullest. Jesus, would you come now quickly and right all wrongs and help us to endure to the end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.